Let us pray. Father, again, we are faced with a miracle of our Lord, his ascension and return to you. We see this as an endpoint of the Passion story, but help us to see more and more that this event heralds the beginning of our taking on the responsibility of speaking the word to those around us to help prepare for Jesus' return to us. We look to that and pray for it in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this is not the day of the Ascension. That was Thursday, exactly 40 days from the day of Easter. Um, but be that as it may, we're celebrating it today. This is also the seventh Sunday of Easter, um, just to keep it all straight. Today we celebrate Jesus' return to his Father God. This is termed the Ascension, a word with the implication of moving upward. This is based, of course, on the gospel accounts where the word translated from the Greek is that. What happened at the ascension? Jesus departed his earthly ministry. He had become incarnate, and then after maturing as a man on earth, he had three years of preaching, teaching, and healing, about which we know quite a bit. But this work is completed. And the work on the cross is completed. We have been reflecting on this throughout Lent and the Easter season. There are really many things that we might consider as we think about this event, but I shall choose only three. There's sort of something automatic about doing that. You know, pick three. You would never pick four. Three. First off, is the ascension something to which we should pay attention is it an important event for Christ's followers? Secondly, just where do we think that the risen Lord has gone? And the usual third question, what does the event have to do with me in the here and now? When I say me, I mean you. Luke tells us in his book, Acts, from which you heard Karen read this morning, that exactly before Jesus did ascend. He had some parting words for his disciples. Indeed, these were his final words on earth. What did he say? He mentioned that they should wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and you'll have, hear a lot more about that next week at Pentecost. He told them not to concern themselves <clears throat> excuse me, with thinking about the day of the Lord, the day that Jesus would return. As previously, he warned them that even he did not know when this would be. And strangely, I, Barclay said that he thought it was blasphemy for us to even think about that. I thought that was a little strong, but there you are. As previously, he warned them that even he did not know when this would be, that only the Father knew the time. And he again told them that the Holy Spirit, his replacement here on earth, and of course, the third person of the Trinity would soon be with them. For this reason, the fact that these were his last words here on earth, the ascension is important. 
But in addition to this, we must see that the ascension was an absolute necessity. Our thinking about this requires that we think about why there was such an event. Jesus had certified the fact of his resurrection by remaining 40 days on earth after the event. Let's look at the available evidence one more time for the resurrection. Mary Magdalene and James saw him alone. The 11 disciples saw him in their midst. The two on the road conversed with him. 500 brethren at once experienced him. That's 1 Corinthians 15, that amazing chapter from Paul on the resurrection, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. He gave really infallible proofs that he had really risen from the dead. And these remain with us to this day as historic facts. He ate a piece of broiled fish, we're told by Luke, to prove that he was not a ghost. He invited the apostles to touch him and see that he was made of flesh and bones. Doubting Thomas laid his finger in the print of the nails and even thrust his hand into the wound on his side. And I always, when I think of this, have to mention Caravaggio's picture of that, which I hope you've all seen. If not, go home and Google it. Um, it's an incredible picture of Thomas thrusting his hand into the wound on Christ's side. It is an amazing picture, Caravaggio. Their very doubts were used to make the evidence more incontrovertible. The fact that Jesus had truly died was put beyond question by the thrusting of a spear into his side. And the fact that he was alive in a material form was equally well established by the touch of Thomas. Now, agreeably, and we've spoken about this twice before at least, he was changed in appearance. And this is mysterious to us. As Bishop Emeritus Benedict puts it, he was newly embodied. I like that. We believe that all happened as stated. But the staying around or in modern parlance, hanging out, could not go on forever. I see Russ smiling there. There had to be a final moment when Jesus returned to his Father in heaven. One might say that 40 days really was not a long enough period of time. His followers still had some serious questions of him. But the post-resurrection time could not just fizzle out. A finite end seems to have been in order. Might we then see the ascension as an exclamation point after the passion events? But then, we're like the disciples. We think, what next? Is not this the way we are? We cannot stay too long on any one thing. We've got to bounce along to something else. We have to move hurriedly along to something else. This, then, does lead to their question about the restoration of the kingdom in Israel associated with his return. And Jesus said bluntly not to ask. 
we know, we've heard this previously quite a few times, the synoptics always say a similar thought, a recount a similar thought. It's not something about which they or we are to speculate. We must presume that the event of the ascension left the disciple witnesses in a jaw-dropping state. They must have been aghast at the appearance of their beloved leader being lifted up into a cloud. But they are immediately confronted and possibly comforted by two angels who suggest that they'd better get a move on and go about their business. The business of proclaiming their witness of Christ to the end of the earth. What can we deduce about where Jesus has gone at his ascension? I Google that too. And I push that special thing, images. Fine art and even not so fine art are replete with images of Jesus being taken up. Such images are packed, usually with angelic figures and ethereal clouds and whatever else. In all, however, one senses a rising up toward the heavens, wherever they may be. Now, here we must remember that in the time of biblical writing, the earth was believed to be flat. And the area above that flat space was heaven. I believe we understand the cosmos somewhat better now. But back in the day, the view of how the earth was configured required the upward motion of the ascension. Now, this is important. We do not need such a motion. And so I think we ought to see his ascension not necessarily as a going upward to a new cosmic location, but rather as his being taken up and, listen carefully, reincorporated into God's very being. Reincorporated into God's very being. We talk about his sitting on the right hand of God. Fine. Good image. But I think it's more important that we think of it as his being reincorporated into God's very being. We know that Jesus came from heaven. Can we not think of the ascension as returning to the place from which he'd come? This allows his resuming participation in God's powerful presence in the world. That seems more satisfying. We do not need to think about a specific physical place when we talk about heaven. For us, for us, it is a state of blessedness where we will be forever with God. As Christ followers, we have been promised this. It is our hope, always and ever. Third point, how does all this apply to us in the here and now? The ascension and the world-changing events leading up to it have deposited us in an interim time. We know that there's much more to come. Indeed, Jesus has been on earth teaching, preaching, and healing 
His incarnation is the inauguration of eschatology. But do not be put off by that tongue twister. That phrase recognizes simply that, as I have said, there is more to come. It bespeaks the already, but not yet. That was a favorite seminary phrase, as I recall. In fact, the angels present at the time of the present, at the time of the ascension, relate that Jesus will return in the same way that he was taken up. His return to earth in glory to claim those that are saved is part two. Folks, the best is yet to come. With the return of Jesus, God restores the fallen world and cosmos back to the way God would have it. And here, I must repeat what I say almost every time I stand up here in front of you, we are in waiting. We are expectant. We must be preparing as best we can in our own little way, the world around us, to receive Christ at his return. We are required to remain vigilant, and we must keep our eyes fixed freely on God in order to have the right actions in our lives. If we remain in an expectant and vigilant state of mind, we will welcome surely Christ's return. I was very hesitant, but I am going to mention Karl Barth, who I've never been able to understand at all. I'm smiling at Bob now. <laughs> Karl Barth, um, 20th century Protestant theologian, brilliant writer, um, but difficult. And the dean of my seminary was really into Karl Barth. And he would come and lecture, and it would all sound wonderful until I went home and looked at my notes, and I could figure out nothing that had been said. Karl Barth has noted, speaking on the ascension, that when Christ returns, this will be a victory from above and not from below. Not the beginning of a time of awakening, but the beginning of a time of refreshment in view of the face of the Lord. What a relief that will be. And so, I would encourage you all to rejoice in the ascension of our Lord, seeing it for what it is, the, un, the end of one phase of sacred history and the beginning of the next. Amen. <laughs>